I am very fortunate because I get to meet so many exceptional women, record their stories, and then give them back to you in the hopes that you will find some value in what these women have to say. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. Now, today's story features Kelly Tuthill, an award-winning, really well-known and respected broadcaster with a girl-next-door kind of charm. But it was her battle with breast cancer at only 36 that endeared her to women across the country and around the world because she documented her journey by allowing cameras into the room. I've interviewed her before, but it was many years ago. So I invited her over to my house for a chat, and then I pressed record. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I thought her story might inspire you or someone you love. I started out by asking how many years it had been since her breast cancer diagnosis and how she's feeling these days. Thank you very much. It's easy to remember because it's 14 years and my daughter, who was just a baby when I was diagnosed, just turned 14. Wow, 14 years. Give us an update on how you're doing. Everything's great. You know, I always say, thank God the drug I needed was ready when I needed it because it saved my life. So that's why I've been such a proponent of research because it's true. I mean, you just live and wait for the next big treatment, hoping that if you need it, it's going to be there for you. And it was for me, Herceptin, one of those targeted therapies you hear about. It definitely saved my life. I had an aggressive form of cancer at a very young age. So they threw everything at me and it worked. Thank God. How did breast cancer change you? Well, it made me take nothing for granted. And in this difficult year, I think we've all learned that. And you seize upon these moments. And I was thinking about it when I was coming over here today. This has been a lousy year. But I think because of my own breast cancer experience, I try not to focus on that. Easy to say if you haven't lost anyone. But we've all suffered. I focus on what was good about this year. I really do. I turned 50. Ta-da. Ta-da. <laughs> and while I didn't jump up and down about it, let's be clear. I'll be a little low-key about that one. But I'm grateful to have made it. And most everybody else just assumes they're going to make it to 50. But when you're 36 and you get breast cancer, you celebrate that you made it. I have a five-year-old. I never thought I would have a kid that late. And she's going into kindergarten. And we found a way to get her to kindergarten despite everything. So I'm grateful there's a school that would have her and she's in person. And that's a great thing about this year. And I got my doctorate. Dr. Tuthill. Not a doctor is useful this year, I'm sorry to say. But I did get my doctorate from Regis College this year. You got to keep learning. You got to keep growing. So to have those things happen this year, yes, I feel like it's been a lousy year. I remember interviewing you during your treatment all those years ago, and you were chronicling your breast cancer journey so that your viewers, your fans in Boston and all around the world could see what you were going through, but also they could see you as a survivor. You had an I can do this, you can do this kind of mentality. In fact, you called your book you can do this. What is your message? What was it then? What is it now? Hope is everything. You have to have hope. Otherwise, why do the chemotherapy? Why get a mammogram? If you think that it's ultimately going to lead to your demise, you have to have hope that things will be better, that you can handle whatever is thrown at you and that you can overcome it, even though the odds sometimes are difficult. You were included in a beautiful coffee table book that I'm included in as well. I'm number, I think I'm on page 98. You're on page 53. This is a gorgeous book. It's called Boston Inspirational Women. Photography by Carrie and Bill Brett, a father and a daughter. So, so talented. Your hand in this picture is over your heart. It's also over your breast. Raising money for this cause became your mission 
here in Boston. Talk to me about that. Well, first, an honor to be included with you in this book. Great company and an honor to have known you this whole time since I was diagnosed. So thank you for your friendship and for celebrating the goodness in our community always. For me, as I look back at those times, I knew early on something lousy happens. What are you going to do about it? And once I got past the really sad part, I decided I was going to fight like hell for me personally and fight for others. And I've lost three friends this year alone. And so in the 14 years, you can extrapolate it and you'd be pretty much right on. And that is candy that's beyond heartbreaking to lose friends and why the treatment wasn't there for them when they needed it. So every day of my life, that's the commitment to their families, to their children, to their husbands, that we will fight till there's a treatment for everyone because these were amazing women and they should be here with us. They should be in these books. They should be on this show and they're gone because we just need to keep fighting. Research is everything. Great institutions in Boston. You're so fortunate. And all of the women here in Boston and then people who come into our city from around the world, you got your treatment at Dana-Farber. You are a recipient of the Jimmy Fund Award. That is true. You know, Dana-Farber is an exceptional institution and the research going on there. And one thing that scares me with COVID is we can't let up. So much of the attention right now is on COVID and it has to be, but we have to keep funding the research into other diseases, including breast cancer. It's killing so many women every year, over 200,000 diagnosed every year, more than 40,000 dying every year. We can't give up on the research that's needed to find a cure. It's happening at Dana-Farber and beyond, and it's important to me. And you are still very active in many breast cancer charities. Talk to us about that. Absolutely. So I'm on the advisory board at the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. They fund uh, research at all the major Boston hospitals. They are the largest private funder of breast cancer research in the world. So it's top-notch. Evelyn Lauder of the Estee Lauder Company founded this, and she made it her life's work that we would find a cure. didn't happen in her lifetime. So the mantle's passed to us. We have to do it. There are a lot of us absolutely committed to this. You know, over the years, I've worked with the Ellie Fund out of Needham. They're doing fabulous things. Comfort, right? Imagine having breast cancer right now. And women helping women. A meal shows up at your door. The Elliefund.org, great organization. It is. I think these are trying times to, you know, a lot of the women, they're going in to get diagnosed and they can, they can bring one person. Right. You know, sometimes you need your team. How important have your friendships been with your girlfriends throughout your life? It's everything. Well, I'm one of four daughters. So it starts with your best friends, your sisters <laughs> and your mom. And so female bonding. I had a dad, and I think this is important to note, that always made it clear I could do anything. I ended up going to his school, right? His school that, by the way, when he went there was all guys, Notre Dame. And I went there and because he believed in me. And I always would say, thank God they went co-ed because it allowed me to have that experience with my dad. So I do think it matters, dads out there. You know how you treat your daughters? Do you treat them in stereotypical old-fashioned girl ways or do you make them empowered to feel like they can do anything? I was always eager to prove to my dad I could do anything. And um, so it started with a supportive family. And then it goes out to your network with your friends. And yes, my girlfriends, they, I could never repay them. I swear, if somebody tells me that they need a Band-Aid, I'd jump up and drive <laughs> across town and get them a Band-Aid because I'm so grateful for all that my friends and family did for me when I needed it. Well, speaking of girl power, your house is all girls all the time. You now have three girls. I know you've got a 14-year-old, but one of the things that you had shared with me when we first spoke on the radio all those years ago was you were worried that you wouldn't be able to have another baby. And you have a five-year-old now. Take me back to the moment 
when you discovered you were expecting a child for the third time? It was pretty shocking to say the, the least. I mean, really like palpitations. I can't breathe. You know, what is happening? I was shocked. We were not trying to have a, a third child. And I was worried, you know, is it safe to have another child? I mean, I was on tamoxifen, which is a drug that's used to prevent cancer from coming back. Not uh, ideal for somebody that has a baby uh, inside them. You're not supposed to do that. So it was stressful. But once we were convinced everything was okay, I was like, oh my God, what a gift. And that again, get back to the hope part. Because that's one thing with young women when they're diagnosed with breast cancer or a different cancer, they worry, am I ever going to be a mother? And this gave hope that anything's possible, which is, you know, why I think HOPE is so important because I didn't think I'd become a mom. The odds again at 45, naturally, and that it would be that a healthy baby girl, she's five, she's smart as a whip, was reading to me last night, trying to get all the words. It's great to see there's, she's perfect. You know, you had referred to your sisters being one of four girls, and you talked about your parents, your dad. Can we go back a little bit to your childhood? Where are you from, Kelly, and what was life like in your house? I grew up in Hingham, Massachusetts. Mean Streets of Hingham, I joke. Uh, where the Bratz live, by the way, that did this beautiful book that we talked about, and great photographers. And pretty normal upbringing, very lucky, uh, for sure. And to have a big family, it was never quiet. We didn't have one of those houses. It was always bustling, big extended family, lots of cousins, uh, grandparents, awesome grandparents that were involved. So never a dull moment, animals everywhere, that sort of thing. What was the message in your house, particularly around work ethic? Yeah, I mean, I think both my parents just worked so hard. My mother, very smart, devoted herself to us. And as soon as we got to a point, she took some of that back for herself. She went back to school became an interior designer, started a whole different chapter. And I think when you set that example as a mother, it's really powerful and probably, well, I know it's one of the reasons why I took on an advanced degree at an advanced age, because I saw my mother do it. Yeah. And if she could do it, I knew I could do it. She had four. I just have three kids. Piece of cake, right? <laughs> you said that you followed in your dad's footsteps and you're a Notre Dame graduate. I'm still going to be your friend, even though I am a Boston College girl. But talk to us a little bit about your experience at Notre Dame. What a great school. A lot of fun. I have to say, like, I wasn't a big football person before I got there, but you learn fast. If you want to fit in around here, you might, <laughs> you might want to figure this all out. So I learned fast and really had a lot of fun with it. It was a great time in Notre Dame football. They won a national championship my, fr my freshman year there. So it was just a lot of fun. And you get to a school like that. First of all, you're in the Midwest and you came from the East Coast. So you're adjusting a bit. Big. I went to a smaller school. This is a big school. And I just said, what am I going to, how am I going to fit in? And I ended up going to the newspaper office and um, applied to be a, on the student newspaper. And that was a lot of fun because you're at a Catholic university. It's the 80s and you're asking questions and it was fun. Catholic institution isn't always known for being, uh, you know, forthright on every single issue and, and open and everything. Um, that was never the culture at Notre Dame. I think it's changed a lot since I was there. But we asked questions. We held them to a truth for the students. We were the voice of the students. And we produced a daily newspaper while trying to get our degrees done. So it was was fun. It prepared me well for the rest of my life. So you started out writing newspaper articles for college. Talk to me about how you ended up on television. So it was an evolution. I never wanted to be on TV. That wasn't the goal. I wanted to tell stories. And what was the way to do that? And um, I ended up going to Columbia Journalism School in New York. And when I got there, you had to pick a track. And at the time, it was newspaper, 
broadcast or new media. But at the core of it, all three, it's storytelling. So I picked broadcast because it seemed like it would be fun and I'd be with other students working on projects. And I just loved it. I got bitten by the bug and I just, I loved it. Tell me about your first job in TV. My first job in TV was in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Oh boy. Yep. 1995. I just packed the car up and I drove down and the whole thing about being a good reporter is having connections to the area, uh, knowing people to call. I knew nothing, you know, so you just learn as quickly as possible. You try to make friends. You try to endear yourself to the community. Tell me about the first time you ever saw yourself on TV. Did you like what you saw or were you critical? Oh, critical. It's scary. It's the kind of thing, um, you know, even voice, everything, you know, from from radio. Is that what I sound like? You know, is that me? I I don't know. You know, is that what I look like? Why am I standing like that? What's with my hair today? The hair, the hair, (laughs) because the wind is always blowing your hair. Um, No, and, you know, again, back to the three sisters and the mother, built-in critics. So they'll let you know if they don't like the way you look or the way you sound or what is that outfit. Um, so you just, you end up watching yourself a lot. You do kind of back then you'd record and then you'd watch and you'd learn from from watching. And if you're really brave, you ask other people, what do you think? You go to the news director. Okay, here's my last couple of stories. And you brace yourself and you say, what do you think? And you hope the person is able to give you some constructive criticism and you take it. It's hard to take criticism. It ain't easy to go from Altoona, Pennsylvania to Boston, Massachusetts, where WCVB just happens to be an award-winning television station, winner of Edward R. Murrow Awards and Gracie's and AP Awards all over the place. Tell me how you made your way back to Boston on WCVB. What a moment that must have been. An absolute dream. So I I went from Altoona. I worked in West Palm Beach, Florida for a couple of years. And um, Florida's good for for the news business. You know, you got weather, hurricanes. There's always a dramatic crime in Florida. There's, there's always something going on. It's, it's a good place to build a reel, as they would say. So I built my reel, and I made my way back up here to Boston. And it was it was a dream. I mean, Chet and Nat. I, I always will tell, and, and Natalie laughs when I tell this story. But I said, you know, just to have to say those words, back to you, Chet and Nat. I, my throat got dry, and I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Like, it was a dream, you know, and it, it, it was for the whole family. It really was um, a very proud thing to be able to work at such a, you know, prestigious station with such amazing talent. You made a decision to leave WCVB. Tell me why you decided to leave. Was it one of those situations where you just knew it was time? Timing is everything, right? Timing is everything. And I loved my job. I loved covering court cases. That became sort of my thing later in my career. I covered the Whitey Bulger trial. You got a hot tip on the Whitey Bulger trial. I did, trial. I did. I got the first photo after he was captured in, in Los Angeles and Santa Monica. And I covered the Boston Marathon bombing trial. So federal court was sort of became my thing. And I really did enjoy the challenge of covering court cases with no television cameras. <laughs> I like a challenge. So I really loved it. And that's just two examples. I mean, I could give you a million examples of the rich stories that I was allowed to tell. It was absolutely a privilege. I love doing what you're doing right now, interviewing people, hearing more about them, you know, sharing their stories, getting at why they wanted to share the story. What was it they wanted to change about the world or what, what did they think they could fix or share? And it was an incredible privilege to do that for, for 20 years in Boston. So I kept thinking, what's going to be the second act, if not the third act? And so I thought I needed to keep my eye on the ball because if you wait too long, Nobody may buy into that you could be someone other than Kelly Tuthill, WCVB, News Center 5. So I wanted to kind of hit a sweet spot where I thought people could believe there was more. 
And then I did too. It's a confidence to, thing too. You have to have the confidence to step into a world that's foreign. So I did it just looking at, at some point I want to do this, why not now? And I waited for the right opportunity. Well, the opportunity came. You are the Vice President of Marketing and Communications at Regis College. Walk me through your day just a little bit. I'm going to guess that this job requires you to take everything you ever knew and put it all in one place. It does. I mean, so on a given day, there might be an event to plan, a lecture or panel discussion. There might be a video to shoot or plan. There's always social media, right? So that's absolutely the news business, storytelling. There's talking to students and finding out, well, what's exceptional around here? Who's somebody that we could feature? There's marketing nonstop, right? The business is bringing students in to come buy what you're selling, which is an education, all the programs we do. So it's marketing's nonstop. There's internal communications that need to be done. I'm tired already. Yeah, exactly. And so it's not boring. I think some people were like, oh, I wonder if she'll be bored, you know, after covering the news. It's not boring. And it's multitasking. And that's what I love the most. And it's teamwork. What are the characteristics of a great journalist? Curiosity. For one, if you're not curious about the world, I don't think you're going to be very good as a journalist. I think putting a premium on truth and truth seeking and what that entails. Persistence. There's a fine line between being a royal paid in the you know what and being just persistent. You know, maybe the call didn't go through. Don't assume they don't want to talk to you. Try again. Maybe they're not answering the phone. Knock on the door. You know, there is a persistence factor to it. And fairness. I mean, that you have to set a good standard for fairness. Somebody else may disagree with what it is, but you have to have an internal compass that drives you to be as fair as possible, recognizing, of course, we all bring bias to what we do in every day and every way. Of course, we're human. But you do the best you can to be fair to people and to be honest and straightforward. A big story happens. Do you still feel the need to jump in your car and start heading toward WCVB? Because I can tell you, when we're having a blizzard, I'm always like, oh, I think I should go now. You know, now I get to sit here and turn on the fire and feel warm and toasty. What about you? You have these moments. Yeah. You know, certain things will happen and you think, there was a period of time um, when the Trump administration, there was some court rulings that were coming down on the weekends and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. I would have liked that, you know, to be right in the mix of things. We learn something from every chapter in our lives. What has been the biggest lesson for you so far? I think it's that you're never too seasoned huh, to learn new things. You know, I try to be really open. You know, you walk into a new culture. And in my case, this was an academic culture, but it could be anything. How can I listen? How can I learn? because I thought I knew a lot where I came from, and this is different. So how do I both give an air of, I know what I'm doing, but you all have something to teach me, and I'm willing to learn that, and it's a balance. Let's talk a little bit about your girls, because I believe that when we become a mother, (laughs) we see the world through an entirely different lens. How did motherhood change you? (laughs) I honestly, one, I always worried I'm that working person. I'm going to have trouble having kids. That wasn't the case. I had kids, no problem. Then I thought, I'll be lousy at this. And my sisters used to tease me that when I would say it's dinner time, my kids would go put their jackets on. (laughs) (laughs) That was the joke in our family. They'd assume I'd put them in the car and take them to McDonald's. That's very good. (laughs) So yes, sisters, keep you real. Um, But I've learned to do it. it. It's not a job you can screw up. I mean, you can, but do you want to? I didn't. So I've learned to cook. I'm not a great cook. 
But I, I didn't think it was that you say, I can't cook. Well, I've taken on these people and they need to eat. So, you know, you learn to cook a few things. So I'm not a great cook, but I can cook. I have a handful of things I can cook decently well. Um, so again, it's the learning part, right? So it was a job I took on. I didn't know everything. So you read some books, you talk to some people, and you figure it out. So it's humbling. At the, at the end of the day, it's humbling. Because I feel like it's always, if they seem sick and you take them to the doctor, it's nothing. If you ignore it, it's coronavirus. So you cannot win. So it's completely more humbling than any job I've ever had. What is mother love? It's sometimes knowing you don't have to say anything. You just got to be with them. You know, and that's hard for me. I'm a, I'm a talker. And sometimes you just need to sit there with them and be willing to wait it out and know that, you know, my husband jokes, he says, you know, since it's Corona thing, you're always in the kitchen, meaning I'm sitting there. I'll put the laptop there and I kind of sit in the hub. I'm kind of perched waiting to see who needs me. And I'll figure out how to work in that. But there's a lot of needs right now. Kids aren't in school. They're off their schedule. My little one's worried. She knows everybody has some sort of virus. So I kind of sometimes just perch in the center of it all and don't say anything and wait. And if you need me, you know where to find me. And sometimes that's the best you can do. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? (laughs) I usually just bulldoze right through it. (laughs) That's more my style. What do you wish you knew when you first got started? And can you pass that along, a little piece of wisdom, to a young woman who's just getting started, no matter what career it is? That it's okay to not know everything and to make yourself vulnerable enough to say to someone, what do you think? And I had that a lot with the photographers at Channel 5. They were all very seasoned, very senior. And if you gave them attitude, like you were this young thing and you knew everything, they weren't going to help you at all. If you made it clear that you respected their knowledge and the experience they had, Oh, they would save your ass repeatedly. And boy, are you grateful for that. (laughs) Final question for you, Kelly. And thank you so much for your candor and joining me today at my home for this interview. We all have seasons in our lives, and I believe that we have chapters that lead to our success story. What is your definition of success? And when will you know that you've made it? I think the definition of success is how you've helped people, what impact you've had on others. And so I humbly would suggest I've tried to do that. I, I think there's much more to do. And so how do you serve others? What can you do to make the world a little bit better? Because at the end of the day, what else matters, right? Feeding the kids, which I've, I've really worked on. And then that's the lesson you want your kids to have is that the end game here is not to make a lot of money or to be famous. It's to help people and to have a positive impact on the world when you leave it. In whatever way that is for you, what gifts you have, how can you share them best? That's Kelly Tuthill's story. And I got to tell you, the stories just keep on coming because there are so many incredible women out there. So if you know someone I should interview, I really would love to hear about her. Just email me, candy at candyoterry.com. And please follow me on social at candyoterry. Let me spell it for you. C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y. Until next time, here's some wisdom you can use. Good goes around, even if it takes a while. We all rise when we lift each other up.